This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem. Ya bani Israel, adhkuru ni'mati allati an'amtu alaykum wa awfu bi'ahdi, ufi bi'ahdikum wa iya yafarhaboon. وآمنوا بما أنزلت مصدقا لما معكم ولا تكونوا أول كافر به ولا تشتروا بآياتي ثمنا قليلا وإياي فاتقون ولا تلبسوا الحق بالباطل وتكتموا الحق وأنتم تعلمون رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلو العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي فالحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين once again, everyone, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I was actually, after my study of that first ayah in which Allah told the Israelites that he, they should make mention of the favor that Allah did to them, I was looking at Ibn Ashur, Imam Razi, Al-Kashaf, Ibn Kathir, several mufassirun and what they thought about what that blessing was. And I talked to you about that before. My own, my own self, my heart wasn't entirely settled uh, because Allah does mention ni'mati as a singular uh, in that ayah, and they, man, they made a long list of blessings that the Israelites received, and inspired by that reading, I did share with you a long list of those blessings. But I do feel very strongly after taking a second look at it, and actually reading some things from uh, Hamiduddin Farahi, rahimahullah, and others, that the ni'mah in that ayah, the blessing in that ayah, is actually first and foremost guidance itself. It's revelation and guidance itself. And that's already indicative in the most recent usage of the word ni'mah, which is in the Fatiha. We ask Allah for guidance, and immediately, who, who are the people whose path that we should follow in order to have guidance? Salat al-ladhina an'amta alayhim. So the in'am of Allah, the giving of the blessing from Allah, is actually directly associated with guidance. Then the other thing that led me down that path more even, is that uh, the word ni'mah in Arabic, which we translate typically as blessing, comes from the Arabic word nu'umah which means softness, comfort, relaxation, ease. These are the implications of the word ni'mah. And of course, when you think about comfort and ease, you're thinking about the opposite of fear and sadness and distress. That's the opposite end of it. And so you have in the ayah also kind of a tafsir of the concept of ni'mah when Allah says, فَمَن تَبِعَ هُدَايَ فَلَا خَوْفٌ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا هُمْ يَحْزَنُونَ يعني سَيَكُونُنَا فِي النَّعِيمِ that they're not going to have any fear on them, nor are they going to be in any kind of sadness, which suggests that they're going to enjoy ni'mah. That's actually the concept of ni'mah itself, again associated with the guidance given by Allah. And of course, the Israelites, unfortunately, their, their tragedy was that Allah had blessed them and He had favored them over all other nations. The thing that favored them was not their genetics, not who their father was, not who, you know, who they were as a species, like they were some kind of superior human beings, and everybody else, all the Gentiles or Goyim, everybody else in the world is less human than they are, which is unfortunately what is found in some of their literature, that God made them somehow a superior creation. This is, a, this is their misunderstanding. Allah only gave them the preference in terms of what the gift to them was the guidance. That's what set them apart, is Allah allowed them opportunities to learn from His guidance and live by His guidance more than any other nation. They were offered chance after chance after chance. That is what set them apart. So when they abandon the guidance, then they abandon the one thing that gives them their superior position. And that still holds true for the Muslims. Allah has chosen this ummah. We are honored to be in this ummah. 
But now, since Banu Israel, and that's the other thing, right? They were called because Allah Azza wa Jal, after, after uh, uh, Nuh and Ibrahim alayhim salam, Allah Azza wa Jal, like re- secluded guidance to the family of Abraham. Meaning Allah would send messengers, particularly major revelations would come within the family of Ibrahim alayhi salam. So the Israelites are from within that family. And then the final revelation through the children of Ismail alayhi salam to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi salam is also within that family. But for, because this is the last of them, this is no longer a family matter. That's why we're called Ya Ayyuhallazina Aminu and I made reference to that before. But as, you know, looking at different parts of the Qur'an and understanding, like kind of trying to internalize what is it that Allah is inviting these Israelites to? He's talking to them directly. It is a unique place in the Qur'an where Allah just says, Ya Bani Israel, just like that directly, right? And He'll do it three times in the surah. So it got me thinking about other places that we should be looking at a little more carefully. And though we did look at this ayah before from Surah Al-A'raf, I want to give you a, a quick background that I think will help you appreciate some very powerful insights about the nature of uh, this promise and this favor that Allah had done to them. Because there are two things I wanted to repeat. One was the meaning of, of the blessing, the ultimate blessing, which in fact is guidance. And by the way, one more comment about that is that, you know, if you have guidance, then everything around you becomes a blessing. And if you don't have guidance, you can have everything else in the world around you, it's still a curse. If you don't have, if you have guidance, you could have no food, maybe one, one small seed to eat, and it's still a blessing. You could be in difficulty, and it's still a blessing. You could be in ease, it's still a blessing. You could be in sickness, and it's still a blessing. You could be in health, and it's still a blessing. But if you don't have guidance, you can have all of the good things in this life, but none of them are a blessing. None of them mean anything. So the one thing upon which all the other blessings turn and convert into something else, is actually the gift of guidance. And that's why it should be looked at as the first and foremost. And that is of course what they're being called to, to believe in this final guidance. Now, what happened with the Israelites is a long history. Here's a short piece of it. They, when, they crossed the de- when they crossed the water and they escaped from the Pharaoh, they were out in the middle of the desert along with Musa salam. And they were not the most grateful people because they started asking Musa salam of all kinds of food that they used to eat back then when they were in Egypt, now in the desert, they're not getting all that kind of food, uh, and they were ungrateful about it. So there are multiple occasions in which Musa salam gets upset with them. And at one point, actually, Allah Azza wa Jalla called, and the law hasn't been revealed yet. This is important to note. The Torah was not given to Musa yet, salam. So Allah calls Musa salam to reveal the Torah to him. So Musa left his people in the custody of his younger brother, or actually older brother, some argue, Aaron, Harun. He left him with them. And he went up to the mountain to receive revelation. While he was gone, in the back, behind him, they unfortunately went back to some of their pagan practices and started worshipping a gold. They, they carved a golden calf. They took all the jewelry and whatever they had, molded it, melted it, turned it into the shape of a baby cow, basically a calf, and started worshipping it. And developed this pagan ritual around it. Right? And this is in the absence of Musa salam. Musa salam comes back. He's, he's infuriated when he sees this practice, and there's some very severe punishment revealed by Allah Azza wa To those who initiated that practice, Allah revealed that they should be given the death penalty. فَقْتُلُوا أَنفُسَكُمْ We'll read about that a little bit later. But I'm jumping through that history quickly. So now, the tawbah was, one, the criminals who engaged in this crime must be executed, and two, the, the, you know, there's a group of the leadership of the Israelites, because you know, when, when a family messes up, you hold responsible the head of the household. Right? So the thousands and thousands of Israelites that were there, a group of them was to be held responsible. Seventy leaders of the Israelites were to be taken back up the mountain so they can apologize to Allah directly. 
the 70 of their leaders were going to now accompany Musa salam and be taken back directly to Allah to apologize. So now, وَاخْتَارَ مُوسَىٰ قَوْمَهُ سَبْعِينَ رَجْلًا This is not from Baqarah, this is from Al-A'raf, it's already been revealed. Baqarah is a later revelation. Okay? So, وَاخْتَارَ مُوسَىٰ قَوْمَهُ سَبْعِينَ رَجْلًا لِمِقَاتِنَا Musa salam chose 70 men to uh, accompany him for our meeting, for the appointed time of a meeting. فَلَمَّا أَخَذَتْهُمُ الرَّجْفَةُ قَالَ رَبِّ لَوْ شِئْتَ أَهْلَكْتَهُمْ when the, when the explosion took a hold of them, the loud sound took a hold of them, meaning when they met, they came before Allah, Allah was enraged with them, and actually they all basically were stunned, and pretty much they died. And later on Allah will say, He raised them back from the dead. These 70, when they came in, in, the, in the presence of Allah, Musa salam said, Master, had you wanted, you would have killed them. Min qabl, from much before. Wa iyaya, and you could have killed, us, killed, me, killed me too. أَتُهْلِكُنَا بِمَا فَعَلَ السُّفَهَاءُ مِنَّا Are you destroying us on account of what the fools among us have done? You know, in here, illa fitnatuk, tudillu biha man tasha, wa tahdi man tasha. This is nothing but a trial that you're putting us through. This is a test, this is a very difficult test. And by means of this test, you will mislead many and you will guide many. Anta waliyuna fafillana warhabna wa anta khairul ghafirin. You are our only protective friend and you must cover for our sins and show us love and mercy because you are the best of those who can cover. Waktub lana fi hadihi dunya hasana. And now, Lord, now that you've forgiven us, we beg you, because they, they came for forgiveness, right? And now he's talking on behalf of these 70 leaders, and he's telling Allah, doc, no, write down for us, which means guarantee for us, good in this life. وَفِي akhirah, And in the afterlife too. When do you say this? When you're the closest in conversation with Allah. What do you say? رَبَّنَا آتِنَا فِي الدُّنْيَا حَسَنًا وَفِي الْآخِرَةِ حَسَنًا You know when we say that? When we go to Hajj. That's the dua. وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ يَقُولُ رَبَّنَا آتِنَا فِي الدُّنْيَا حَسَنًا Hasan, that's a sunnah of Allah. When you're in the closest possible place you can be to Allah, which before the Kaaba, what was that place? It was Tur. So when they're there, they're making the same statement that we make when we go to the Kaaba. You know, the parallels are remarkable. Inna hudna ilayk, we have turned in guidance towards you. Qala adabi. Now Allah speaks. Adabi usibu bihi man asha. My punishment, I will strike with it whoever I want. Warahmati wasiat kulla shay. And my loving mercy, in fact, it has overcome, it has expanded to all things. فَسَأَكْتُبُهَا Then I shall write my mercy. Now this is God speaking, when the 70 leaders of the Israelites are terrified, they're there to ask for forgiveness, and at this moment God spoke to them. Which means this is one of the most epic moments in the history of the Israelites. You understand this? Like this is a very, like a, a, a milestone moment in their history. Allah spoke to all of them, and now first He said, I will strike with my punishment whoever I want. But my mercy extends to all things. But I will guarantee my mercy. I'll guarantee my mercy. And now their ears must be like, who's He going to guarantee His mercy to? So listen to this. فَسَأَكْتُبُهَا Then I'm going to guarantee it. لِلَّذِينَ يَتَّقُونَ For the people who have taqwa. Do you see a correlation with the Qur'an itself? ذَلِكَ الْكِتَابُ لَرَيْبَ فِيهِ هُدًا people of taqwa. But he stop, doesn't stop there. He says, zakata," And they give zakat. Salah is something they had. Zakat was a once in a while thing for them. Where, which book keeps saying, pray and zakat, pray constantly, combining them together? Quran. He's telling them at the mount, I will guarantee this mercy for people of taqwa who give zakat, وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ بِآيَاتِنَا يُؤْمِنُونَ And those who will believe in our revelations and our miracles, الَّذِينَ Now this, this is not enough of a description. Who are these people who will have taqwa, 
who will be God conscious, who will give zakah, who will believe in my miracles, الَّذِينَ يَتَّبِعُونَ الرَّسُولَ النَّبِيَّ الْأُمِّيَّ Those who are going to follow the messenger, the prophet, the unlettered one. الَّذِي يَجِدُونَهُ مَكْتُوبًا عِنْدَهُمْ فِي التَّورَاتِ وَالْإِنْجِيلِ The ones who are going, the one that they will find documented among them in the Torah and in the Injil. The Torah and the Injil. By the way, where is this conversation happening? Up on the mountain. Has Injil even come yet? No, Injil is the last of the books to be given to Bani Israel. That's the book given to Isa alayhi salam. In this one statement, Allah is already mentioning, by the way, I'm talking about those who will follow the unlettered prophet, who will actually, you will find mention in both Torah and Injil. And in doing so, what Allah is saying is, this is not about Jesus. Because if this was about Jesus, then you wouldn't find confirmation about Jesus in the book that was given to Jesus, Injil. <laughs> it's actually both Torah and Injil are going to be talking about a messenger who is unlettered. And by the way, Isa is extremely well read. He used to challenge the rabbis. The unlettered prophet that, that is documented in Torah and Injil. Then he doesn't stop there. He says, يَأْمُرُهُمْ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ He'll command them to do decent things. He'll, the known, the well-known decent things. وَيَنْهَاهُمْ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ And he will prohibit them from unknown evil acts. وَيُحِلُّ لَهُمُ الطَّيِّبَاتِ And he will make permissible for them good and pure things. Notice, that as I finish this, وَيُحَرِّمُ عَلَيْهِمُ الْخَبَائِثِ And he will prohibit them from filthy, dirty things. What was mentioned first? The messenger first came to make haram or make halal? To make halal, يُحِلُّ عَلَيْهِمُ الطَّيِّبَاتِ ثَانِيَةً وَيُحَرِّمُ عَلَيْهِمُ الْخَبَائِثِ The messenger came to open the door for good and pure things for them, to unleash them, to make permissible those things, and then to prohibit things that are filthy by their nature. This is actually a quality of our messenger wasallam. but he doesn't stop there. If this wasn't beautiful enough. By the way, all of this, in a sense, Sermon on the Mount. This is actually God's sermon to the Israelites their leadership, as they were seeking God's forgiveness for having disobeyed Him directly. Because they had already just defied Musa salam, And Allah is saying, this is a pretty bad crime. You just worshipped a calf. This is a pretty bad crime. But, I will punish those who... There's a much bigger opportunity for you to earn forgiveness and guarantee yourself safety. That's if you believe in this messenger that's coming. That's what He told them then. And so, listen to this. وَيَضَعُ عَنْهُمْ إِسْرَهُمْ and he will remove from them their burdens. What does that mean? He will remove from them their burdens. You know, the Israelites, what they had done is they had created fatwa on top of fatwa, on top of fatwa, on top of fatwa, making the list of haram things very, very long for themselves. And they had made the religion very difficult to learn. If you want to understand the religion, you better study these books, and then maybe you'll begin to understand. So the deen itself became a huge burden. And as a result, they felt very restricted within the religion. Notice the first thing described about the Prophet ﷺ, He opens the doors, he makes things easy. And then only the filthy, dirty things he prohibits. But as a result of their strict, overly, overly ambitious academic nature, they had actually turned the religion into something very difficult. Allah says, this messenger will come ﷺ, and he will remove their burdens. And the chains and the fetters, like the fetters of a prisoner that used to be on them. And then he adds, this is the last part, is not just about believing in the messenger. Listen, فَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا بِهِ 
Then the ones who believe in him, meaning Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and they honor him and aid him. Ta'zir in Arabic is actually not just to respect someone, but to help someone out of respect. Like for example, if you have a lot of respect for your parents, and your parents just came, they just pulled their car over up in front of your house. You don't wait for them to get out of the car, open the trunk, take out their suitcase, roll it up, drag it up to your door. You're going to run out and do it for them. This is out of what? Respect. Right? That's ta'zir. You help someone and you go out of their, your way to assist them out of respect for them. That's the idea. Not just respect like, oh, assalamu alaikum, so good to see you. You still have two more bags? Oh, I hope you get them quickly. You know, <laughs> there's flies coming into the house. <laughs> That's not ta'zir. So the idea of ta'zir is those who believe in him and go out of their way to respect and help him. Why is this important? Because Allah Azza wa already knew that when the final messenger comes, one of the worst people to insult him are going to be which people? One of Israel. And instead of helping him, they're going to be hurting him. And as a matter of fact, they'll make fun of the fact that he's ummi, that he's unlettered. Because we're the scholars, we're the red ones. He's not even red. Look at him, he's just an ummi. And the word ummi was actually put for them by Allah directly when they stood before Allah. Be ready for this. And so, وَيَضَعُ عَنْهُمْ إِسْرَهُمْ وَلَغْلَالَ الَّتِي كَانَتْ عَلَيْهِمْ فَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا بِهِ وَعَزَّرُهُ وَنَّصَرُهُ And they aid him in battle. Nusra is actually not just any help, aid, it's like massive aid. They aid him no matter what it takes. And they follow precisely and they follow diligently the light that was sent down with him. What is that a reference to? Quran. Aminu billahi wa rasulihi wa Those are the ultimately successful. That's the promise that was taken from them. They wanted Allah's forgiveness. And they wanted Allah to promise them, Allah, you know, Musa alayhi salam asked for them, asked them of what? Rabbana atina fi dunya hasana, wa fil akhirah, and give us an akhirah also. He says, fine, that's my rahmah, that's what you want, my rahmah in this life and in the next life, that's guaranteed for the people of taqwa, who give zakat, who believe in our ayat, those who believe in the final messenger, who will aid him no matter what, the one they find written about in this book, and the book that will come to Isa alayhi salam. By the way, in this passage, the Jews are already being told, you better believe in Isa. Why? How, how do we know that? You better believe in Isa because which book is mentioned? Injil. And they didn't just disbelieve in Rasulullah They also denied Injil. So they've already strike one and this is strike two actually. This is strike two. And then Isa comes back later on, that's strike three. You know, so now I want to share something with you about this promise that's mentioned in Deuteronomy. And it's really remarkable. It's, it's something that... Uh, Hamiduddin Farah, he made reference to in his amazing, amazing book, Ar-Ra'yu Sahih, Fi Man And recently I came across it again. Um, I will, inshallah, eventually learn Hebrew and then read this to you in Hebrew so like you can see the wording, hear the similarity to the Quran, whatever's left of it. But this is the New Living Translation or the English Standard Translation I'll read to you. I will raise up from them, he's, God speaks to Moses and he says, I will raise up from them a prophet like you. I'll raise up from them a prophet like you. Now at this point, anybody could argue, well, all the prophets that came after him are like Moses, right? Solomon came, Zechariah came. There's so many prophets in the Hebrew Bible and even in the Quran that are from Bani Israel. So they're all like Musa. But let's, hold on. A prophet like you, if you take this from the Muslim perspective, no one is closer to Musa salam than Rasulullah Why? Musa salam was given a law. 
no prophet of the Israelites after Moses was given law. They were only given a confirmation of what was already given to Musa. They weren't given a law. Rasulullah is the only one after Musa that's been given a law, a sharia. Musa salam, not only is he given a law, he's actually someone who had to migrate in the middle of his lifetime. He had to make hijrah. Hijrah from where? Egypt into the desert. And it was a miraculous hijrah. And Rasulullah has to make hijrah also. From where? From Makkah to Medina. Musa salam had two audiences. The first audience was the pharaohs and their people, the Egyptian people. And the second audience was his own people. Rasulullah also has two audiences. He has the people of Quraysh, who disbelieved. And then he has his own people in where? In Medina. Musa salam among his people, they were hypocrites who gave him a hard time. He had to say, لِمَا تُؤْذُونَنِي Why are you causing me pain? Why are you causing me pain? And on the other side, Rasulullah within the Muslim community had to deal with who? Hypocrites who caused him pain. If some Christians say, no, Moses is just like Jesus. Well, Jesus is first of all born of a virgin birth. Musa salam a regular birth. Rasulullah a regular birth. Musa salam is taken up in the heavens. He, doesn't, he hasn't even experienced death yet. And Rasulullah and Musa salam die a natural death. Right? The commonalities between Rasulullah and, 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 uh, and Musa are uncanny. Now listen to the rest of this verse, okay? From, from the Bible. This is Deuteronomy 18.18. Okay? I will raise up a prophet from among... Uh, no, no, I will raise uh, up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. That's the rest of the verse now. From among their brethren. Well, you know, there's a difference between saying from among them and from among their brethren. If you say from among them, it's from the Israelites. Who are the brothers of the Israelites? The Arabs. Because Ishaq, Isaac... The father is brothers with Ismail. So their cousins, their brethren are the Arabs. I will give them one, a prophet, by the way. It says, I will raise up from them a prophet. If you say this is referring to the prophets of the Israelites, did they get one prophet or many prophets? But their brethren only got one prophet. And that's Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa So it even, even within the language it's confirmed. Then on top of that, and I will put my words in his mouth. That's the Bible's words. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. وَمَا يَنْطِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَى Quran says, وَمَا يَنْطِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَى He doesn't move his mouth with his own desire. إِنْ هُوَ إِلَّا وَحْيٌ يُوحَى It is nothing but revelation that's been inspired to him. These words, he doesn't make the... Quran keeps saying, وَلَوْ تَقَوَّلَ عَلَيْنَا بَعْضَ الْأَقَاوِينَ if he were to artificially make up words, then we would cut his throat. You know? That's what Allah says about the revelation. Now why specifically mention, I will put my words in his mouth. Musa salam is very similar to Rasulullah but Musa salam was given the Torah to read. Words were not put in his mouth. He was given the tablets, the alwah, and he was to read from them. So revelation was physically given to him. Rasulullah sallallahu the difference between him and Musa had to be made clear even in the Bible. There's, there's going to be a difference. Unlike you, I will put my words not on a tablet for him, but where will I put the words? In his mouth, because he can't read. So they'll have to come directly from his mouth. So he, and then he says, he shall speak to them all that I command him. He'll speak to the people. Subhanallah, what an amazing, amazing verse. Even to this day, found in the Bible. You know? 
So now, coming back to Surah Al-Baqarah. This was, these are two things I wanted to highlight. One about the, the, the blessing, and the other about the favor, or, or rather the promise. Now, yesterday, by the end, we were talking about Don't sell my ayat for a small price, or don't purchase by giving up my ayat, using my ayat as currency. And somebody actually emailed me and said, asked a very interesting question, and I want to add that discussion to our, uh, our dars today. And that is, you mentioned that, you know, I mentioned that this is what their ulama, their scholars used to do, right? They used to sell the fatawa, and they used to hide things from the book conveniently, and that's how they sold out, basically, the book of God for just whatever gain, political gain, financial gain, whatever gain there may be. And somebody asked, is that only for scholars, or can regular people do that too? And the fact of the matter is, the regular people can do that too. And I'll tell you, this is a very important distinction between the Muslim ummah and the nation that came before us. Unfortunately, some of the bad habits of the people before us befell us too. Rasulullah says the same things will happen to my nation, my people, that, that fell upon Bani Israel. The same exact events will occur. Which actually even suggests in one hadith, the parable given is, if they were to go into a lizard's hole, you're going to follow the ways of those who came before you. If they were to jump into a lizard's hole, you jump into one too. Right? The idea of that is we're mindlessly going to unfortunately repeat previous mistakes. Now one of those mistakes is that the Torah, they kept it special for one group of people, the scholars. If you want to know what the Torah says, then you have to go to them, and they will tell you what it says. You should not be reading it. And even if you do read it, read it without understanding. Like Ibn Abbas comments on the Israelites, he says, يَقْرَأُونَهُ حِفْظًا وَقِرَاءَةً بِلَا فَهْمْ لَا يَدْرُونَ مَا فِيهَا they read, the, they read their book, they memorize some parts of it, and they recite it beautifully, but they have no idea what it's actually saying. Okay? That's, the, that's a disease of the Israelites. Now, when that, that is not supposed to be the case of the Muslims. What happened at the time of Rasulullah He gave the speech. I want you to think about this. There's a massive gathering of Muslims by the time Islam is victorious and the Rasul is done with his mission. It's one of the farewell addresses of Rasulullah There's thousands upon thousands of Muslims in front of him. And he's telling them, بَلِّغُ anni walau ayah." Famous words. Communicate on my behalf, even if it's what? A single ayah. Did he say, well, wait, you might misunderstand. First make sure you get an ijazah and tajweed. And then make sure that you've at least studied 16 tafasir. And then make sure that your nahu and your sarf and your balagha and your knowledge of the qira'at and your knowledge of hadith and fiqh and sharia and all of the ulum and make sure that your aqidah is, you know, you've gone at least through five or six different texts and then maybe communicate an ayah. Or did he just say, بَلِّغُ عَنِّي وَلَوْ ayah? And who's in front of him? Are all the people in front of him scholars? Are all the people in front of him students of, of Rasulullah for many, many years? These are hundreds, if not thousands upon thousands of people. Some of them just became Muslim that day. Some of them are Muslim for a week. Some of them have like such bad... They don't even know the Fatiha yet. They don't know nothing. They just know La ilaha illallah, that's it. Some of them actually, you know why they became Muslim? Because the Prophet took over the Kaaba and they believed whoever takes over the Kaaba must be right. The Quraysh used to be right, but clearly God is with this one now. Let's just follow his religion. Some of them became Muslim because their tribe leader became Muslim. And you know when you're in a tribal society, when your tribe leader becomes Muslim or does anything else, you do it too. I actually know some tribal communities even in, the, in America 
there's a tribal community I met. Um, I won't say which ethnicity. They were in a, in, a, in a state, and when they all came, they came as refugees, right? And the tribe leader, he said, okay, I'm going to get my entire community cell phones. So he calls like AT&T and Verizon or whatever. He says, look, I have 500 families. You will give me 70% discount, and I'll give you 500 sales. Because when I tell my tribe to sign up with AT&T, they will. And you will put a cell phone tower on our building, and you're going to pay us royalty. <laughs> and he got it. <laughs> he actually got it. The idea is they're in a tribal mindset. When your leader says something, what do you do? Everybody follows. So when the tribe leader becomes Muslim, you don't say, well, what are your, what's your dalil? How did you become? Explain to me how you became Muslim. No, no, he's Muslim. All right, let's do it. Why do you think hundreds upon thousands of people became Christian when the Roman emperors became Christian? It's a tribal mindset. When the king does something, you do it too. Everybody convert at the same time, no problem. So the idea here that I'm trying to get at is, you know, when uh, uh, people are just blind followers, they don't even think through what's being told to them. They just follow their, you know, their leaders. This is a quality that you have to be careful about as a person in a position of religious leadership. You know, when Allah says, "Wala tashtaru bi ayati thamanan qalila." Don't sell my eye for a small price. Those, that religious leadership is actually able to sway huge population behind them. There's, they, they won't even question what they say. They're going to do it. The Jews are described in the Qur'an with two populations. One population, ummiyun la ya'lamun al-kitab. People that don't know the book at all. Other people that are very scholarly in the book. The Muslims were supposed to be different. We were supposed to be, our minimum education in the ummah is Qur'an. There are specializations. I'm not denying it. There, there's a specialization in recitation of Qur'an. There's a specialization in tafsir. There's a specialization in hadith. There's a specialization in aqid. These are sciences. Each of, them, each of them are like 10 PhDs on their own. People could be studying any one of these for 30 years and still not scratch the surface. That's true. Okay? But there is a minimum education that everybody's supposed to have. Look, in any society, in any civil society, by the time children reach a certain age, they have a general knowledge of certain things. Like for example, in American society, you have a general idea of what the Constitution is about. You've done some study. You know, you're not, you're not, you're not going to take a high school graduate because he did high school level you know, American history or you know, political science or whatever and put him on the Supreme Court bench. You're not going to do that. But at the very least, he understands certain basics about the Constitution of the United States. You understand? There's supposed to be a certain basic level of religious education that isn't meant for a special group of people. It's actually meant for everybody. It's meant for everybody. And when you don't have that anymore, extremism is born. Cults are born. Then religious groups are born that say, we will tell you what the religion actually is because you don't know anything. When you have at least a minimal knowledge, it's hard to take advantage of you. But when you don't, then it's very easy to take advantage of you. This, this is the culture that actually the, the, the role of scholars, the role of scholars is not to communicate further and further, follow me, follow me, follow me. The role of scholars is to empower people. The role of scholars is actually to be a resource for the rest of the community so we can learn to engage and ask intelligent questions. That's supposed to be the role of scholars, to lift everybody up. So we all rise together at the same time. So that by the time the next generation comes around, they're much more educated at the same age that you and I are now. So our hope is by the time your children are in their 30s, they know much more about the Qur'an than you do. 
So the questions they ask of their scholars are much more intelligent questions. And they live much more of an aware life. They don't have to become ulama for that, but the minimal level has to rise. When that doesn't happen, then you get, you know, لا تشتروا بآياتي ثمنا قليلا وإياي فاتقون سبحان الله ولا تلبسوا الحق بالباطل Now a very scathing criticism of that class. That second class of people. So one class of people don't know much about the religion. By the way, the reality right now for the Ummah is not much different from the Jews. Most Jews had no idea what the Torah was. Most Muslims today don't, know, don't have any idea what? What the Qur'an is. They don't know. I mean, their parents made them memorize a couple of surahs. They maybe like recited the whole thing to a shaykh once when they were kids. And the, the moment they did, you know, That's it, this book, I don't have to deal with anymore. I have graduated out of the Qur'an and I can do the rest of my life now. Right? I don't have to deal with the Qur'an anymore. The Qur'an was just a ritual that you pass through and then you move on with your life. That's, and it's not their fault. That's just a culture that developed. Our job is not to cry about that culture, but it's to do something about that culture. It's to help that culture. And to like, lovingly raise that culture. But here's what happens. The other class of people, the people this is massive, m- most people don't know the book. But that means there's a small group of people that have done some Arabic study. They've done some sarf and nahu. They've done some tafsir study. They've maybe even gone to get a degree in Islamic studies. Is that the majority of the Ummah or the minority? The minority of people know something about Islam. They know, some know a lot, some know a little. But if you put all of them together in one group, there's still a very small population of the Ummah, right? The problem is this small population of the Ummah is actually now in a very dangerous position. Because they are leading basically the blind. They're leading the blind. And they can, whatever they say, people say, well, I follow him. Whatever he does. Whatever he says. People come up to me all the time, hey, uh, what do you think about Islamic banking? And I say, I don't think about Islamic banking. (laughs) No, no, but what do you do? I say, that's for me to do. (laughs) (laughs) No, but just, what's your thought on it? I was like, I have a lot of thoughts on it sometimes. (laughs) But I'm not going to tell you. No, no, no. I'm not saying, I'm not asking you for a fatwa. I was like, yeah, because I wouldn't give you one anyway. I'm just saying, what's your preference? You see, you're asking me for my preference because you feel that my preference must be based on some exhaustive religious learning and therefore if I tell you my preference, that'll be good enough for you. That's why you're asking me, which is basically a fatwa. That's Because you're asking my religious judgment for myself. If it's good enough for me, it must be good enough for you. The problem with that is, that's not my area of specialization. That is a matter of Islamic law and a very complex piece of Islamic law something that I'm certainly not qualified to delve into. If I have a question about it, I'll go to certain scholars and ask them. I can point you to them. I can tell you, here's a scholar I would ask. Here's the person I'd have a discussion with. You know, but you're going to have to have your own discussion. You're going to have to learn that yourself, for yourself. If I started just openly saying my opinion about anything, there are people who say, I don't, I, and I've met those unfortunate people. I love them, but I also feel sorry for them. I just listen to Numan Khan, I don't listen to anybody else. What is your problem? <laughs> listen to everybody else, please. <laughs> don't, this is, this religion, first of all, is way too big for one person. It's way too big. And I, I don't even teach the entirety of Islam. I teach a very, very specific piece of our deen. I try to learn it and try to teach whatever I can of it. The Book of Allah. Like, there are people that I go to to study hadith when I have a question about hadith. I don't comment on hadith much because I don't feel qualified. 
It's not my, I, I learn it, I study it, I sit with ulama with it, but I wouldn't teach it. Because that requires way, it, it requires the kind of brain capacity that I just don't possess. That's extremely intelligent people that are qualified to teach that subject. I, I wouldn't count myself among them. Allah actually made the Qur'an easy. Especially to give reminder, the dhikr. And that's what its role was. So your job and my job is to be that more educated class. Now if we don't have that, then now this criticism that we're about to read is of the knowledgeable class of people. So if myself included, those of you that are learners of Islam, those of you that are learning Arabic, Tafsir, Quran, Hadith, Sharia, whether you're in an Islamic university or you're getting ijazah from a sheikh or you're doing like Tafsir Halaqa or you're studying and you've done it for a couple of years, these are the ayat about us. Allah is talking to the Jews, but He's never just talking to the Jews. He's always talking to us through them. This is the ummah that's on trial now. Don't dress and disguise the truth using falsehood. This is actually the word haqq means four things, but I'll start with one of the meanings, truth. Allah is describing a very particular strategy. Something is true. The Torah is true. You're going to disguise it with falsehood. And the word for disguise, talbisu, comes from the word libas. I think everybody here knows what the word libas means. What does libas mean? Clothing. Clothing. Don't put the garment, the clothing of falsehood on the truth. When you put clothing on, some parts are hidden and some parts are exposed. The face is exposed, but the body is hidden. For example, right now my hands are exposed, my arms are hidden. This is libas. Don't keep some parts of the truth so your conversation, your evidence, your discussion is still convincing, and then mix in with it your corruption. It's very easy for people who are knowledgeable in religion to quote half the text, or to quote one ayah or one hadith to make their point and not talk about how there's another ayah and another hadith that balances this point. There's an entirely other set of principles that you conveniently didn't mention, and you used good evidence, but you disguised it with falsehood. You understand? It's very clever, but it can be done. For example, about the Qur'an, we already read, يُضِلُّ بِهِ كَثِيرًا وَيَهْدِي بِهِ كَثِيرًا Allah misguides by means of this book many, and He misguides the corrupt, right? We read this before. It is very easy for me to say, the Qur'an hates women. Let me tell you why. And I could quote like 40 ayahs. I could do it. If I wanted to, I could do it. And because I've been studying Qur'an for a long time, so if enough waswasa shaitan did to my head, I would totally do it. And then on the other hand, I could give a lecture and say, the Qur'an loves women. Let me tell you why. And I could quote another 40 ayat. I could do that. I'll be very convincing too, let me tell you. I'll give like, I'll pound my head and like, like give a really emphatic speech and people will take a clip of it on YouTube and throw it up and say, see, the Qur'an says women are cursed or something. But you know what? As convincing as that is, I would be manipulating the text. I would have to keep some parts out, skip some things, the only people who'll notice that I'm doing that are who? Other scholars, people of knowledge. Most people will realize it or no? Nope. And when other scholars try to correct what I say, then the most people say, oh, you're just jealous. Right? Isn't it possible? There are people I've recently met, or, 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 or debated, a couple years back actually, 
who basically said Islam declares war on all non-Muslims. And they had 40 ayat in their lecture. Ayah after ayah after ayah. Very powerful. And I'm listening to this speech and I'm going, wait, you're not quoting the next part. You're, not, you're missing the what, the... what What are you doing? But if an 18-year-old is listening to this, قَالَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى كَذَا وَكَذَا وَقَالَ 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 By the end of the speech, you're like Allah says, we hate non-Muslims. I totally hate non-Muslims. And he got like, he got so much dalil, man. He got so many ayahs he quoted. Yeah, you could quote. But when you don't give the, t- the text justice, you can disguise the truth with what? Falsehood. You have to let the Qur'an speak for itself. You can't selectively quote. If you selectively quote, and you skip other parts, or conveniently ignore other parts, then this is actually the ultimate crime against the Qur'an. And that's why you'll appreciate the next part. وَلَا تَلْبِسُوا الْحَقَّ بِالْبَاطِلِ وَتَكْتُمُوا الْحَقِّ it's not وَلَا تَلْبِسُوا الْحَقَّ بِالْبَاطِلِ وَلَا تَكْتُمُوا الْحَقِّ There's no, the la doesn't occur twice. In English we say, don't disguise the truth with falsehood, nor hide the truth. But the word nor is not there. There's no second la. So it's not neither nor. Neither disguise it, nor hide it. The word nor is missing. Why is it missing? Because now this becomes bayan. Bayanu ma sabak. Which means, don't disguise the truth with falsehood, by hiding the truth. The ultimate way to disguise is to actually conveniently skip certain things. To not mention certain things. To overlook certain things. And this is actually a very serious disease in the ummah today. Very serious. You know, there are... I, I, I won't blame groups of people. So I like to keep things as general as I can. I am a student very much. But I'm an annoying student. I'll tell you that much about myself. I'm sure you find me an annoying teacher. I'm a much more annoying student. When I learn with a teacher and a teacher says, the Qur'an never says this or never says that, I immediately contradict them and say, what about this, what about this, what about this, what about that? Okay, fine. Let's talk about something else. (laughs) I don't take things blindly from my teachers. I don't. Even if I respect them. And I respect them to death. But when they say something and it doesn't make sense to me, I tell them flat out right then and there. I don't say, oh, I should have some respect. I should stay quiet. Man, angels were not quiet in front of Allah. Are you really going to put him on the earth? He's going to cause corruption and spill blood. If angels can talk to Allah like that, you're a alim. I love you, but I'm going to talk to you like that. I'm going to say, this don't make sense. I don't get what this is. How can you make this conclusion? How do we draw this conclusion or that conclusion? So what's happened is I'm, I'm very blunt. Right? And I don't do this openly, of course, ever. It's in private settings. Right? So I'm, I'm sitting with a scholar, learning from him or her, and then they'll say something and I'll, I'll ask them, and I'll ask until I'm satisfied. And a lot of times my blunt questions, I get put in my place, most of the time anyway. Right? So what happened though, one time, I want to share a story, and I'll keep the details so ambiguous so that you don't get to wonder and blame who it might have been. Okay, so I'm going to keep it as general as I possibly can. So I'm in this gathering, of scholars. I'm the only non-scholar there. And I look like it too. Okay? I don't even know what I'm doing there. But I brought up the ayah about hitting women. I had just studied it that morning with another scholar, because I had questions about that ayah. And I was convinced what it's about, and this is not a halaqa about that. But anyway, I was convinced of what that is about, and how it's not actually an open license to hit women, or anything even close to that. And I studied it carefully with this other scholar. And I sat with this group of ulama, And I just wanted to see if I could stir some trouble, because I was bored. So I was like, yeah, I was studying this ayah today. And uh, I learned certain things. 
And here's what I learned. And they're all like, so what did you learn? And I said, well, it means this, this, and this. And it doesn't actually mean that you can just hit women. You know, it's not, that's not what it's saying. Uh, and to my surprise, this group of scholars said, yeah, of course. That's not what it's saying at all. And I said, and at that point, I couldn't hold it. I was like, but if that's not what it's saying and you're agreeing with me, how come you've never said that before? Because I've heard you guys and your larger group say things to the opposite effect. Why don't you ever share this conclusion with anybody? And the answer was, well, the people aren't ready to hear that yet. And I said, people aren't ready for the Qur'an? From scholars? What in the world does that mean? Well, you know, people are accustomed to doing things a certain way. If they hear these things, they might take it out of context, and they might, you know, women might get out of hand. Like, oh, thank you. I'm going to leave now before I throw up. You know, hiding the truth? Because you don't think it's suitable? Because you don't think it's socially acceptable? Because your group doesn't like to think this way? Or you might end up disagreeing with the rest of your clergy? There are people who graduate from a certain school. A madrasa. Some other, whether it's in Egypt or in Pakistan or in Bangladesh or in Saudi or in, you know, in, in Jordan. doesn't matter. Somebody graduated, got a degree in Sharia from their school. They did their later studies and they decided that some of the things they learned from their school, they don't agree with anymore. They don't agree with. They're not in agreement with this fatwa or that fatwa of their school of thought. They still won't say anything. Your job as a scholar is loyalty to your school or loyalty to your deen. Loyalty to what you learned, the truth, the evidence, the word of God, the words of your Prophet or your school of thought. What are you here to defend? What are you standing up for? Well, I wouldn't want to, you know, because our elders wouldn't like... Your elders? Who's more elder to you? <laughs> Who has more seniority to you? Where's the majd of Allah when it comes to this? Our loyalty is to the word of Allah. Some young guys came to me, they're studying traditionally. And I, I envy them. If Allah has opened the doors for you to study the tradition, please do. But wallahi al-azim, don't forget one thing. As much as you love your teacher, as much as you love your shaykh, as much as you love the one you're getting your ijazah from, and you have loyalty to them, disagreeing with them is okay. So long as you are absolutely convinced. And if you're not convinced of what they're saying to you, in light of what you've learned, your loyalties must remain with the truth. Don't become, وَلَا تَلْبِسُوا الْحَقَّ بِالْبَاطِلِ وَتَكْتُمُوا الْحَقِّ Don't bring that into this ummah. It will only bring about destruction. Because then what will happen is, you will mindlessly defend your school of thought. And they will mindlessly defend theirs. How do you disagree with my shaykh? How do you disagree with my shaykh? Everybody's defending their school. Nobody's defending the deen of Allah. That's what will happen. That's what will happen. And it's the sad tragedy of it is, the very ulama that they claim loyalty to, the senior ulama of most of these madaris, you will find they are far more open, far more intellectual, far more like, you know, per- permissive, and, and broad in their thinking. And their students down the trickle become more and more rigid. That's crazy. The higher up you go, you don't get more rigid, you get more open. You get more, like, more courteous. There are people I met in one group, for example. I, again, I don't name groups. So, and don't use your imagination. People I met in one group, the first time they met me, you know, the way you dress, you dress like the kuffar, you, you, know, you, you, you have no knowledge, you have this, you have that, you have the other. Like just, they just trashed me. You should never even speak. I was like, thank you. I'm going to go finish my salah now. 
I prayed behind them actually that day. I was at an airport. Then that later that month, one of the most senior ulama of that group, worldwide known, I ran into him at the airport. And he said, he's sitting next to me. And he goes, you look familiar. I said, a lot of people tell me that. And he says, wait, my daughter watches your Quran things on her iPad. And I said, maybe. And she, he said, I listen to it too sometimes. It's very good. And we started talking about Quran for like an hour at the airport. And then he said, come to my madrasa sometime. And I got really scared because I had done met people from that school who told me I'm pretty much a kafir. And now the head of that school is saying, hey, come sometime. Maybe you can give a dars of Quran to our students. I was like, I don't think that's a great idea, but <laughs> can I hide behind you when I come? <laughs> What you learn is people at the top are actually merciful, wise people. But they're surrounded by like this labsul haq bil batil. It's so sad, you know. And it's really tragic that we've become this way. But this is something that was passed down from the Israelites. We we're not supposed to follow this, this unfortunate legacy. Now, this is la talbisul haq bil batil, the meaning of truth. The second meaning is purpose. Haq also means purpose. Don't disguise purpose with purposelessness. In other words, this ummah always had a purpose. This deen always had a purpose. We are not Muslim just for ourselves. We are here to make shahada ala nas. We're supposed to be a testimony to all of mankind. The rest of mankind is supposed to see how beautiful the revelation of God is because of our existence. That is our purpose in existence. You see, when you do more dhikr, and you do more ibadah, and you do more worship, and you do fasting, and you recite Qur'an, who are you benefiting? Yourself. You're like that seed that gets the water, and it gets the sun, and it gets the nutrients, it gets air, and it removes the weeds. But that seed is supposed to turn into a plant, and that plant is supposed to turn into a tree. And a tree doesn't benefit itself, it benefits others. We're supposed to be of benefit to others. We don't keep this to ourselves. That is our purpose. Our purpose is not self-service. Our purpose is not self-service. It's the biggest tragedy to me that we in the United States, for example, have massaged across America and our neighbors hate our guts because all they know is we park on their properties. And all they know is that we jam their, you know, we, we create, create ruckus in their community or make late night noise and keep them up. And none of them knows goodness from us. And this is from a religion in which the Prophet ﷺ tells you about your 40 neighbors to your right and your left. How did that happen? You know? We're, we have a purpose. We have a, the purpose of sharing the beauty of this religion with our neighbors, opening our doors to them, letting them know. You know, the police chief of Eulis was here a couple of nights ago at Iftar. I had Iftar with him. And we just sat and chatted. And I talked to him about how our religion is all about Abraham. And they had no idea. And they're like, I'm learning some really cool stuff. And he invited me to work out with him. I might go. He looks really buff though. I don't know what I'm going to do. But... <laughs> Well, uh, open your doors to these people. This is your purpose. Don't hide it. And they're being told, the Israelites are being told, because they started believing this religion is only for them. They're special. The only reason you were special is because you were supposed to model God's faith to all other nations. That's why you were special. وَتَكْتُمُ الْحَقِّ وَأَنْتُمْ تَعْلَمُونَ And you're the ones who know. وَقِيمُ الصَّلَاةَ وَآتُ الزَّكَاةَ Uff, ya Rabb. Establish the salah and give the zakah. Isn't that something we're told all the time? Bani Israel is being told, establish the salah and give the zakah. Wouldn't you think that's the first thing that should be told? Not to the alim class. The, the, the alim class of people, the knowledgeable people, they actually already pray. 
They already pray. Their bigger problem is not doing justice to their knowledge. If you actually tell them to pray, they're the religious ones. They're actually pretty regular with their prayers. That actually got mentioned later. The first thing that got mentioned was you're disguising the truth. You don't tell the full meanings. You hide this stuff. You're always at the masjid, that's fine, but you need to get your act together and then establish the prayer. And it's almost as though Allah is saying, and that's when you're able to establish the prayer. Now establish the prayer. Don't tell me that you've established the prayer and you've fulfilled the rights of the religion. For the rest of the ummah, for the awam, for the la ya'lamun al-kitab illa amani, the most people, fine, you guys establish the prayer. For the ulama of the ummah, for the knowledgeable of the ummah, they better fix their relationship with their knowledge and the sense of responsibility and not hiding it and not self-serving. If they fix that, then they are in a position to establish the prayer. Because when they establish the prayer, obviously the most knowledgeable are the ones that lead the prayer. And when you lead the prayer, then you're in a position of responsibility. The umarah of the ummah used to lead the prayer. This is not a small place. You know, alhamdulillah, now we want to encourage our children and we get them to lead the salawat for us. Just, you know, to give them courage and to, you know, listen to their recitations and, you know, also enjoy when they forget and all that. Right? But... Originally, the, the position of leading the prayer is actually leading the community. That's actually what it's for. When did Rasulullah ask Abu Bakr al-Siddiq to lead the prayer? He asked him to lead the prayer when it was symbolizing that he's going to be leading the ummah. Even if four or five of you are there, and somebody's leading the prayer, they should understand they're in a position of responsibility. It's a heavy thing. It's not a light thing, you know? So now, aqimu salata wa Because now be, be in a position of leadership. Now be in a position of leadership. And then the words, وَآتُ zakah really get me. Give zakah, give charity. It's so basic, why even tell them that? You remember the commandment, the, when Allah spoke to them on the mountain? He says, I'm guaranteeing my mercy for which people? Those who give zakat, remember that? You know what happens to this class, the corrupt religious class? Not all religious scholars are corrupt, please don't take that from my speech. But those that are, you know what happens to them? They're very good at fundraising for themselves but they're not very good at giving. They feel like their existence itself is a charity to God, so they're entitled to all kinds of goodness for themselves. People should give them and keep on giving and keep on giving and keep on giving, but they don't feel the need to give. They don't feel the need to give. There's something very wrong when you have a scholar like this. There's something very wrong. That's not a good thing. You know? This idea, atu zakat, you need to lead the way in giving charity. You need to be the most charitable. You need to demonstrate not just how you know how to lead, but you know how to give. Wa'atu zakat. But if aqimu salah and atu zakat is already mentioned, what's the point of saying warka'u ma'ar raki'in? That's how the ayah ends. Make ruku' with those who make ruku'. Ruku' is one part of the prayer when you're halfway bowed, yeah? Isn't that part of salah? Allah already said, "Aqimu salah wa atu zakah." So why say to them, "Warka'u ma'arakiin"? What's the point of this conclusion? This is very powerful. The act of rukur, first of all, if you study the Jewish prayer, they used to have such. I actually found diagram, diagrams in the Jewish encyclopedia. I'd, you would swear that's Muslims. If you didn't know, you would swear that's Muslims. But then you look at the bottom Jewish encyclopedia, like, oh, that's them. <laughs> Exact same salah, exact same posture of sajda. They'll ruku'ah, now they don't go all the way. They go here, halfway. 
That's it. Not all the way. Who goes all the way? This is Rukur. What, what have you learned even since you, since you were a kid? When you do this, what does your imam do? What does your dad do? What does your mom do? <laughs> That's what they do. What they're supposed to do is... <laughs> right? This is Rukur. Who's doing that Rukur at the time of the Prophet The Muslims are. The Muslims are doing that Rukur. And you know what? When you say Aqimus Salah, the, the rabbis of the Israelites might say, Aqamna Salah, we have our Salah, thank you. Zakah, okay, we'll give some zakah, fine. No, 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 I don't think you understand. Warka'u ma'arraki'een. Make ruku' with those who make ruku'. By the way, what are the arkan of salah? The fundamental parts of salah. Qiyam, ruku', sujood. Everything else is interim. Basically, it's qiyam, standing, ruku', halfway, sujood all the way, right? Ruku' is the middle part. Qiyam is the first part. When you say aqimus salah, it includes the qiyam. What was mentioned about Iblis? Sajda. What's left? Ruku. The conversation about Salah is actually being completed in pieces. <laughs> Sajda was already mentioned. The thing left is Ruku. And actually by comparison, in a literary sense, what the, what the Israelites are being told, Iblis refused to do Sajda. You're not even doing Ruku. <laughs> His problem, Sajda is all the way. I didn't ask the angels for ruku'ah, I asked them for sajda. You're not even doing ruku'ah. <laughs> and actually, actually suggest, humble yourselves along those who have humbled themselves. Along with those who have humbled themselves. Don't think of yourselves as superior. This is the last two minute discussion that's left. Ruku'ah, I try to tell you some significance of why ruku'ah is mentioned here. But what is this ma'arraki'een? Aqimu salah, wa'atu zakah, warka'u. Establish prayer, give zakah, and make rukur. Why? With those who make rukur. When you say with those who make rukur, you have to stand in the same line as them, or in front of them, or behind them. What do you have to do? Same line. When you stand in the same line, what does that symbolize? You are equal to them, and they are equal to you. You are not better than them, and they are not better than you. The rabbis believed, because of their knowledge and their superior, their, their, their credentials, that they are better than other people. They're higher. No, you need to demonstrate that you are one with the ummah no matter what you know. You are a servant of this deen, whether you're a alim of the highest caliber, or a, a guy who works in the, the sanitation department. So long as you say, La ilaha illallah, Allah has honored all of you. Allah has honored all The only thing that makes one better than the other is taqwa, and taqwa is not a function of ilm. There are people who have no ilm, but they have a lot of taqwa. And there are people who have a lot of ilm, but they have no Taqwa, and they're not worthy much to Allah. So, and since taqwa is something only Allah can judge, we are standing equal in our sufuf. You know, the sahaba, we say there are ranks among them. But it's not like Abu Bakr, Uthman, Umar, first row please. Abu Sufyan, second row, third row. It's not like that. It's not like that, it's one row. And by the way, the munafiqun used to stand in the same row. In the same role. وَرْكَعُوا مَعَ is suggesting that the people who teach religion, the scholarly class, the, da, the da'i, the speaker, these people are supposed to humble themselves along everybody else who humbles themselves. I leave you with a story that personally touched me a lot because it gave me an opportunity to think. I went to Dubai and I had a, a long drive with a fellow. 
He was from Pakistan. He's been living in Dubai. He sends all of his money back home to his family. That's the story of a lot of people, right? So he drives this car, and he's driving me to the hotel or whatever, and we just start talking. And he goes, I, I think I've seen you somewhere. Urdu, he told me. You know, I've seen you And we just start talking. He had seen me on TV. There was some Urdu stuff I had done. And he'd seen me. We start talking. He goes, you know, I just, I just do this limo driving, cab driving thing. You're so fortunate you get to study Quran, teach Quran. You should make dua for me, you know. You know, I just do this dunya stuff. I was like, listen. Rasulullah says, Al-Kasibu Habibullah. The one who earns a, a, a decent living is the beloved of Allah. Is the beloved of Allah. You know, and when qutila duna malihi fahuwa shaheed. The one who was killed protecting his, his wealth is actually a shaheed. When you earn as Allah commanded you to earn, every minute you spend here and the money you're spending on your family, the, the, you're giving, you're constantly in an act of ibadah. You're constantly in worship. Just because I, I'm sitting in the back here, you're driving in the front here, we don't know who Allah loves more and who is more worthy to Allah. That is not a function of that. There could be the guy giving the khutbah and the giant masjid in the Muslim land is full of hundreds of thousands of people and there's one janitor killing the, you know, cleaning the wudu area. And maybe the guy cleaning the wudu area is more beloved to Allah than the khatib. That's very possible. That's the beauty of our religion. We're not better or worse than each other. We narka' ma'arraki'een. We humble ourselves along with everybody else who humbles themselves. Do not create this class society within the ummah. On the one hand, we are going to continue to respect our teachers and our scholars like we do our parents. Wallahi, the gift they give us of knowledge is a priceless gift. But at the same time, we will not allow that to turn into a class society. Because when that happens, then the, 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 the same downfall that came to the Israelites will come upon us. May Allah Azza wa protect us from that. Barakallahu li walakum fil Qur'an al-Hakim.